Welcome to Life Source Church. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. Today you're going to hear a message from Pastor Walt that we hope encourages you. When the pastor invited me to come, explained to me that this would be week four of your series on giving and the whole theme of entrusted, and that I would be the fourth. Things go through your mind. First of all is, I hope somebody leaves me some of the big pieces, um, and I have lost all element of surprise. It's just impossible. I mean, you probably thought, maybe this would be the Sunday I should leave my wallet at home. Because um, I know what they're going to talk about. It, it reminded me of a story a, a pastor told me about several years ago. Um, at his church, he did a children's sermon most weeks where he would call all the little children up and he would sit down on the steps and he would tell them a very abbreviated version of his sermon for that day. Um, and he said he was doing it one Sunday, called all the kids up and he's sitting on the steps and he's got all these seven, eight, nine year olds and he says, kids, tell me, what is it that's gray and furry, has a long tail and runs around on the limbs and trees? Now, kids will do this to you sometimes. Sometimes you can't get them to be quiet, and sometimes there's nothing. And this is one of those. He says, now, come on, you know, it's, it's gray furry. It eats acorns. In the wintertime, it stores them up. Got a long furry tail. Finally, he goes, kids, it runs around on the limbs. It's furry, gray. Finally, one little kid in the back's had all they can take, and he goes, hey, pastor, I know the answer is Jesus, but it sounds like a squirrel to me. <laughs> well, this morning, I'm going to talk about generosity. I hope maybe from a little different angle, and as I've already noted, I know I'm talking to many folks who have practiced the worship of giving with generosity for a long time. I'm probably talking to a few of you who are tiptoeing in in that direction, and some of you are like, man, these guys always are trying to get my money. So wherever you are today, I hope we can, um, we can find common ground in Scripture. And I'm going to go to maybe what may seem like a very unlikely place, a story I think most of you know. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 2, in the only account we have of it um, from any of the Gospels about the birth of Jesus, we have the story of the people we call the wise men or the magi. Uh, the reality is the term magi, um, when that is used, that is simply transliterating, setting over the Greek word into the English language, an acknowledgement that we really don't know all that much about these guys. Now, it doesn't take a lot to figure out, magi, magic, that there was some association in the ancient world of this type of profession with at least things that weren't well understood. They weren't necessarily supernatural, uh, there wasn't necessarily a sleight of hand, but we have these magi, these wise men, and it's not inappropriate at all to call them wise men, given what they do, who come to see Jesus at his birth. Matthew chapter 2. 
After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men, magi, from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We have seen his star in the east, and we've come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And you really ought to put the next little phrase in parenthesis, and all Jerusalem with him, because Herod was the kind of guy with the kind of temper and ruthlessness that when he is upset, you had to pay attention. And if you heard Herod's on the warpath, you had to be very troubled. And when he, that is Herod, had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judah, for thus it is written by the prophet, and quoting from Micah the prophet here, you Bethlehem in the land of Judah are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And then he sent them to Bethlehem and he said, go search carefully for the young child, and when you found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. And when they heard the king, they, that's the wise men, departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before till it came and stood over the place where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they had come into the house, this great scene that every nativity scene incorporates, they see Mary, of course, and they see baby Jesus, and they present to him gifts you already know what they are. You may not know what they are, but you at least know what they're called. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. It, this would be the most generous gift that perhaps Jesus received during the entirety of his earthly ministry. However, along with this example of what I'll call wise guy giving, wise person giving, there are really two sides to this. Um, two words I really want you to think through, and I'm going to go back and forth with my hope a lot in the next few minutes, is obvious and ambiguous. Now, I picked those words on purpose. In fact, I've sort of tortured my family this week talking about this. Um, a lot of things in life are obvious. When the sun comes up, it's obvious. When it's really cold outside, like a week ago, very obvious. Some things are obvious. Gold, that's very obvious. Other things are quite ambiguous. They're just not as clear. I gotta be real careful, because I could step in it real fast this morning, but there are a lot of things that are ambiguous in life. Um, Basically, any sales pitch. Sorry if you're a salesperson. But if you hear a sales pitch, if you're looking at a property and it's described as cozy, it's ambiguous. Um, sometimes in our marriages, our spouses make ambiguous remarks. You know, fine doesn't always mean fine. Okay doesn't always mean mean okay. I've been married 30 years. M my wife, Kim, is probably even more wonderful than you would guess. 
Um, and you've probably guessed she has to be pretty wonderful. But it was only like in the last few months that when she asked me how she looks in an outfit, if I say fine, she goes and changes. I said, I said it was fine. I don't want to look fine. Okay, I mean, most of us guys, we're just satisfied to be clothed. Um, but it's not that way, you know, for others. I was being too ambiguous. There are a lot of things about this giving of the wise men that are very obvious. But I think there are so many that are ambiguous, and there's a great lesson for all of us givers in both. Now, for example, and I, and I told Pastor Walt this, we were talking earlier, I have read more bad commentary on this passage of Scripture in the past couple weeks than I can remember reading on almost anything I've ever studied in decades now of studying Scripture. Because we all, we, we want to cross all the T's and dot all the I's. I mean, I found a guy who calculated the value of the gift, the three gifts from the wise men in today's economy. The problem is, we don't know how much gold they gave them. They gave them gold. We don't know how much frankincense and in what form. And myrrh. Now, I don't need to tell anybody here what gold is. You know what gold is. Frankincense, though, as it was used in the early Roman period, looked kind of like raisins that had been spray-painted with a fluorescent color. Please don't do this at home, all right? But what it was, was then those items could be squeezed and it was, it could have a beautiful effect wherever they were used. Myrrh um, was probably either in its dry form, a texture like maybe flakes um, of something you might have in your spice cabinet or it could also be made into a cream, but it also was um, a very valuable substance. In fact, and this is more obvious than ambiguous, um, we, we automatically in our, our mindset think the gold was the most valuable of the three gifts. It may not have been. The others were so precious. And it depends on how much they, they gave them, but as I read this guy's account of, well, I've calculated, there's no way we can know that. We're not told how much they gave. Just that they gave. Now, the ambiguity in this story goes way, way further than that. Um, we don't know that there were three wise men. We don't know how many there were. Um, they gave three gifts, but that doesn't mean there were three of them, even though in traditions over the centuries now, they're even given names in some traditions. That's ambiguous. We don't know that. We're told they're from the east. Now, I drove here this morning from the east. I live right outside 128, and you're pretty much, in fact, I live a block off of Route 9. You're, you're my neighbors down the street to the east. When the Bible says they came from the east, they could have come from Arabia. They could have come from Persia. They could have come from the Transjordan, maybe not more than 20 or 30 miles. Now, there are reasons to have theories about it, but it's not clear. So we don't know their names. We don't know where they come from. We don't really know how much they give. There is no way the wise, you know, we can't say, 
Like we could say to you, go back and pick up your giving receipt and here's the value of what you gave. We don't know that. Now, I want you to understand this. When it comes to giving, God himself, I think, is sending us a message. There is some ambiguity. Giving is not like a vending machine. You do this, this will happen. Now, God blesses givers, and I suspect probably several times over the past few weeks that's been pointed out, and that is true. But we don't give because there is an automatic rebate on what we've done. Giving is intentionally ambiguous in some ways, but it is also, there is obvious truth, and I would like to point out two or three, if you'd bear with me here for just a few minutes. The fact that these guys make this journey is, um, is an extraordinary, uh, tricky matter that Matthew doesn't really explain much in his gospel, and we probably don't give much thought to. And I really wanted to begin by talking about really the, the effort that's required to be a wise giver. Giving like these wise men, these wise guys, if you will, the effort that is required. Wherever they came from, they had made some kind of a journey. In that day and age, you didn't travel anywhere by yourself along roads between towns. There were too many bandits out and around. In fact, when Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan, and he says, a guy, and he's in the singular, so basically he says, now this one guy took the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among bandits. His audience, who originally heard that, would have said to themselves, well, of course he did. You gotta be crazy to take that road by yourself, where people around any turn could jump out and steal whatever you've got. You traveled in a caravan, and that's certainly the way the wise men would have come to Jerusalem. So that requires putting together really a whole entourage. It becomes a venture. I want to point this out because anytime we ask you to give, um, it's easy for us to say it's our responsibility, and it is. It's our privilege, and it is. But let's double back, and God makes this clear if we will see the obvious in this story that to give does take significant effort. Now, if you're a gazillionaire, maybe you could say, well, not for me, but for most of us normal people, all of us normal people, it takes an extraordinary effort. I'd like to show you some of the effort the wise men have to put together. Um, to take a journey in the ancient world like they did would not have been simple, especially given what we know about how they started out. They had to certainly do research. They tell Herod that we have seen his star in the east, and I read a whole lot of really bad commentary on this too, and people are trying to figure out, is this some alignment of planets? Is it a comet? Um, I can even, isn't it weird the things you remember from when you were a kid? Um, I, I remember as a kid, one of the first things I remember about the Easter story is I could not figure out 
if the place where Jesus was has this humongous star, like in the Christmas TV shows and movies, right over it, why didn't everybody go? Because that would be, even if you didn't know there was something going on, you'd go to look at this humongous star. And I mean, in the movies, it sort of hovers right over the manger. I mean, it, I don't think that's, that's not at all what the text says. Most people, in fact, almost nobody noticed this star. And these wise men, these magi, must have noticed it because they were studiers of the sky. They were astronomers. They were giving much thought to the world around them and to what it may be. Now, the fact that this is the star of Bethlehem, the star of the Christ child, that's another one of those things that's ambiguous in Scripture. We don't know all of the details about that at all, but we do know that to have charted a course to come to present their generous gifts, it required on their part an awful lot of work, research, planning, and I would argue prayer too. Study, uh, this is one of the things I had to sort of correct my own thinking. I assume these guys must have been Jewish or at least must have been readers of the Hebrew Bible. Uh, I'm no longer persuaded that that's true. Because if they were, I think they would have known the prophecies of where the Christ child was to be born, and they get to Jerusalem and have to ask for directions. So, but within their own context, and this is where I'd so like to connect with you today, they accepted the challenge to put in the effort that would be required to be generous. Now there's a second. Once you put in that effort of generosity, giving like wise men, giving like wise guys, there is an experience that happens. They meet Herod, that was an experience, not the one I'm emphasizing. Okay. And then they come out of there and having been blessed to have studied in Israel and lived there for a while and, and, and gone back there a number of times, including with, with Walt and Glenda and Amber and John and others of you too. Um, Bethlehem's just over the hill from Jerusalem. It's four miles. I've even walked it when I was a little younger. There was less of me. They see the star. They make what probably wasn't more than a couple of hours or so up over the hill. And they are there. Not around the manger, I don't mean to kill your nativity scene, but it's very clear in the text that Jesus, along with Mary and Joseph, are now staying in a house. And I'm going to get to that in a minute. But they come, and what an amazing thing it must have been. At least after weeks to months of travel, after lots of time on the road, after stopping and probably getting directions more times than we want to keep track of, after this awkward and, and frankly downright dangerous encounter with Herod. They walk into a house, and here's a young peasant girl, and Mary's probably still a teenager. Here's her peasant husband. And here's this little bundle of humanity, now probably six weeks old. We haven't had six-week-olds around our house in a while. But I do remember this, you know, when they're newborns, 
It seems like every day they change a little bit and they grow and they find, a, you know, they find some a finger, or, you know, they stick them in their mouth. I mean, it's wonderful to watch. And we have, other than Mary and Joseph, we have no explanation in scripture of anybody else who has the privilege to walk in now and see little six-week-old baby Jesus. Hold him in your arms. Burp him. It's okay to be divine and to still have to burp. (laughs) They burp him. And what we just read says this. They worship him. I mean, we've been worshiping together this morning that same Jesus. They were, did they sing to him? Did they pray to him? Did they get down on their knees? before? All of the above, we don't know. What an incredible experience that certainly makes all of that effort well worth it and so much more. I don't guess they had social media back then, but could you imagine the selfies that could have been done? I um, I spend money on a lot of things, and so do you. Uh, I filled up with gas yesterday to drive out here. That's a trying experience right now, of course. And I've thought about this for years. Man, I hope this pump has given me as many gallons as it says it is. I know you think I got issues. I do have issues, right? I am. Um, I'm amazed at where the money goes. Uh, we've got a, a 17-year-old who just had his, has his first job. And when he got his first paycheck, it was, it was worth a ticket for the price of admission to watch him. You know that stub part? Where does that $8.71 go of my money? I remember, what is Ficka? And I said, buddy... What you're experiencing is what the rest of us call the real world, and she ain't all that pretty. We spend money on all kinds of things, some by choice, some by force of necessity. Can you imagine what it would have been like? You know, somebody in that band of that entourage of the wise men must have, somewhere along the way, had to pull the are we there yet thing. How much longer? Somebody must have said, I was never really in favor of this anyway. I told you this was a wild goose chase. But now here they sit, holding in their arms the savior of the world because they were willing to go through the effort. And the experience I'm going to, I don't know how long they lived when they died. That's ambiguous. We don't know. Do you think they ever regretted that? Well, if I could live my life over again, that whole trip to see the Savior of the world, I would definitely not do that again. There's no way. It's the highlight of their life. All right, one more thing. Generosity like wise men. Generosity like wise guys. It takes a lot of effort, but along with it comes an experience you could never forecast. Lastly, its effect is pretty extraordinary. 
I am. You know, there are hoarders in the world. And then the opposite of that, I don't know that there is, I don't think there's a show about them or a term. I call my wife a thrower. When I put clothes in a hamper, I just hope they are still there. Because if she checks it out and she thinks I've worn it enough, it can go. When I do take bags to the trash, most of the time I peek in just to make sure there's not something in there that I was really hoping to hang on to that she has sent. Truth of the matter. I love you, Kim. If you watch this live stream, honey, I'm saying only nice things. I have a, Kim and I have had four boys, have four boys. I don't know how many empty milk cartons I've smashed down together in the recycle bin over the last quarter of a century. I don't know how many drive throughs I've gone through and ordered X number of value meals plus some side items that I'll eventually clean up the garbage from out of the back of my car. Sneakers, you know, let's don't even go there. I spent my money on a lot of things, and I just hope, oh well, I hope that was wise. Well, these wise men give gold, frankincense, and myrrh. It's a substantial gift, even if we don't know exactly how much it was. For peasants like Mary and Joseph, it would have been extraordinary. Now, here's something that maybe you can tuck away. We know the wise men don't see Jesus until he's at least 40 days old. We know that because Luke tells us in Luke 2 that when Mary and Joseph take Jesus up to the temple to fulfill the Mosaic requirement for her purification after giving birth, that they offer two pigeons. And according to the book of Leviticus, that's a poor clause. If they had money, they would have sacrificed a lamb. If they were too poor, they were allowed to substitute that for two pigeons. And think about this. The holy family, as we call them, here's the Lord Jesus himself is six weeks old, and he's having to take the option of the poorest of the poor, even in their act of worship. Now, they don't know yet what they will know shortly, that an angel's going to appear to Joseph and say, Joseph, you've got to go to Egypt. But before God tells Joseph that, he has a visit of the wise guys, the Magi. How can they afford to go to Egypt? Well, they got some gold and some frankincense and some myrrh they can cash in. Egypt's not like going to Galilee four or five days on a well-traveled road in a place they know. They've got to go across the north of the Sinai Peninsula, which isn't easy to do even today. But they're able to, I mean, this is pretty cool. Who knows but what Jesus' first pair of big boy sandals are bought from the generosity of these ambiguous guys from the East. We cannot calculate what God may do with whatever we are willing to put in his hand. But I can promise you this, the more generous you will be, the more amazing will be the effect. Giving 
is always a touchy subject. A church like this, and, and you have a wonderful legacy of a church, it's so great to be back with you today. And I've already told you, you've been generous. I'm the beneficiary of that. Our, our college is, and I'm grateful for that. And I know times are challenging. Um, everybody's budget is different. If you take something out, something has to go. That's part of the effort of generosity. But God has called us to remember that he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. That the universe itself belongs to our God. Everything we have, book of James, every good and perfect gift we have comes from the Father of lights. And it's our privilege. Yes, it's our responsibility and our obligation, but it's our privilege to turn around and take as much of what we're given and give it back as an act of worship for the ongoing work of Jesus, who's no longer in a manger and no longer in a house, and he's no longer on a cross. This morning he sits at the right hand of the throne of God, advocating and interceding for us and still calling for wise men and women to make the kind of choices Matthew tells us about in Matthew 2. Would you pray? Father, I thank you for the time these good folks have given me today and for the privilege to be with them. I thank you that in your word, as we look carefully, even in accounts like this one, where there's a lot of specifics we don't know, but there are obvious, overwhelming principles that scream for our attention and will transform the way we think and live if we will follow the example that's been given. I ask us today, up and down these rows, and even for those who may be watching at home or away, wherever they are, Will you help us redefine today what giving means? It's not a tip. It's an opportunity. And may we forever be glad for the choices we make in the here and now to generously give to those matters that have eternal value. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Dave. That was good, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. Wait, wait. No, no, no. Hey, Dave. Come up here. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Stump the band. <laughs> All right. Uh, it's really, really good to, for me, encouraging good things. Let's see here. We've got some questions for you. Um, so you, you were talking about how old Jesus was, right? And of course, some people you know, envision him as a little baby, like you said, and others a toddler. And, and you said it had to be at least more than 40 days old because of what we see. What would you say the top age would be if you were estimating? Well, the fact that- If you were that being ambiguous, right? I'll be ambiguous because the text is. Remember when 
Herod decides to go slaughter the children. He slaughters all the boys who are under two. Right. So I think we could say that is by far and away the maximum amount. Mm -hmm. um, it would have been unlikely though, I think just, look, I always tell students, the best thing you have in studying history is your brain and your life. If you're a young couple away from home with a baby, you can't travel too soon. You need Mary to be able to regain her health. You've also got to stop in the temple on day 40. But you're also not going to stay away from home among strangers indefinitely if you don't have to. So I think we, we could reasonably think it's certainly no more than months, but it could have been as much as two years. All right, cool. So um, let's talk a little about this idea of ambiguous and obvious when it comes to the scripture. All right. So which of those words would you use to describe that, this statement that Jesus was born in Bethlehem? Ambiguous or obvious? Obvious. Right, right. It's a, it's a statement of, of fact that uh, the biblical writers understood very clearly that there was a place called Bethlehem. They knew right where it was. All of their original readers knew where it was. To make a claim like that, if it weren't true, would have been foolhardy when they were trying to persuade people to uh, check out Jesus and, and become his followers. So it's an obvious, okay. it's an obvious statement. So then the idea is when it says uh, there was a star. There was, was a star, right? Uh, so we can be confident in our Bibles, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Now the, the key the, is what? The, Defining sure. terms credibly. Um, we have now in this day and age all these different astronomical terms, really thanks to centuries of study. Um, in fact, I had a conversation with somebody um, this week who was in an astronomy class we had on campus, and I have this burning astronomy question, is Pluto a planet again? <laughs> Some of you didn't know that it lost its planet ship a few years ago. but. It's technically now called a dwarf planet, I guess. I, I didn't know. We don't have such a wide variety of terms in the scripture for all the interplanetary bodies. So what's very clear is there is a celestial um, object in the sky that guides it. It would have twinkled. It would have given some kind of light so that uh, folks could have seen it in the pre-telescope days, but there was something in the sky that people who knew what they were looking at could tell. Right. Yeah, so I guess I just want to be really clear, and I know what you believe, uh, but that what the Bible states as facts are not ambiguous. Not ambiguous. How we understand what they mean and might have looked like, that can be ambiguous, right? right? Okay, so we have confidence that we have God's Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I think the only other takeaway, too, if I could add, is especially in a story like what we talked about today, we've, we've added so much sort of traditional thought to it that's not in the Bible, that it helps us at times to go back and reread it again with fresh eyes, because what we can take to the bank is not what I think about the Bible, but what the Bible says. And I got to make sure that those two things align. Right. And let me just add a comment here. This is why I think we see, we see uh, kids who've grown up in church hearing all the stories, and, and then they reach this point, they, they head off to college or out into the world, and, and all of a sudden somebody actually tells them the truth about some particular passage, and it does not match what they've heard. 
and all of a sudden, it all starts to unravel for them. How do I have confidence that any of it is true, okay? So it's, that's why it's really important that when we say this is what the Bible says, that it's not the ambiguous. Right. If, if we do want to say, hey, maybe it was like this, we need to make it clear that that's a maybe, this is what God said. And so I really try to do it with you, but let me encourage you to do that with your kids, okay? I mean, you don't have to try to explain ambiguous to your two-year-old, but help understand it's what the Bible actually says that we trust in. Okay, can you evaluate on the effort of giving? I mean, it sounds kind of simple. Not that your, your statements, but... No, no. The effort of giving, right? What's so hard about it? What, what, what kinds of things are you thinking? No, it's, it's a great question, and, and I'll tell you what I'm thinking when I, I use that term. Um, my wife says my spiritual gift is analogy. I'd always hope for a little more than that, but that's what she says. So here's my analogy. Um, if you go out to dinner today and you give a tip, how much? There are a lot of factors that go into that. But at the end of it all, what, real, what you're doing is you're going to take money out of your limited supply and you're going to make a voluntary choice about what to do with it. You probably don't have a voluntary choice about how much your menu item costs. You know, that's required. But there is then this level that says, okay, now you get some input here that will be a reflection of a lot of things. The, the gift of giving to the Lord's work uh, I mean, no one's going to throw you out of the building if you never give a dollar. Um, and yet, as I tell the folks at, at my church and remind them ever so often, this church itself is self-funded. We, we don't get any outside. We will be whatever we pay for. And the Lord's work across the world is, is really that way. So the effort is, if I choose to do this, something's probably going to go. And the wise men could have spent that gold, frankincense, and myrrh on something else. Maybe, you know, have a nicer caravan. Or instead of making this trip to Jerusalem, you know, there goes that bucketless trip to Switzerland. or so. I, I don't know. But you make a choice. And that is an effort. And it's, I don't think, I'll just be honest with me, it's not always pain-free. It can be a struggle. So, so don't feel like, well, if, if I don't feel 100% great about it, I shouldn't do it. No, no, it's, it's a hard call. But the more you put your heart and your mind to it, the more it's like, this is an investment beyond time and space. Right, sometimes people feel like if I can't do this with if really feeling it, then I'm a hypocrite, and that's not true. Because what you're going to say is, hey, I don't feel like doing this, but I really know that I should. And I go ahead and do it, even though I'm just not, you know, all excited about it. You're living out what you really believe. So it's not hypocrisy. What would be hypocrisy is if you act like to everybody else, oh, I do this all the time, and you don't. That would be hypocrisy. Right. See the difference? So, Okay, good. Uh, so you talk about the experience of, of giving, right? And I think... It sounded kind of like we were talking about how God uses it, right? What God does. Because um, he provides for a trip to Egypt, right? Okay. And so can you talk a little bit more about this, how God blesses us when we give? 
Okay, and this you is said ambiguous. A little bit, you said what it's not, right? I, yeah, right. But I mean, this is ambiguous. So the scriptures say that when we give, that God gives back to us. And I'm sure you've heard it said we never outgive God, and that's certainly borne out by many examples in scripture. Um, I uh, understand. What are some ways that we might There are ways that will be obvious and not obvious, I would say. We see what God supplies in our times of need. What we don't see is how God may often spare us from needs that could have happened, and we don't even know about it. But, you know, that's what a loving father does for his children. You try to take care of things before they become issues. And the truth of the matter is, um, all of us who live in this society, even in the worst of times, have so many blessings. I've often said this, I don't know how we in the United States really honestly say the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. No, what we should say is, dear Lord, which bread am I going to pick today out of all these things on the menu or in the cupboard? We have a lot that we take for granted. But I think there is no coincidence, in the, although I have to be ambiguous with this. Um, the only way those wise men get that experience with little six-week-old or so Jesus is because they had made the commitment. They didn't run out to the Bethlehem Walmart and get gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The, the text says they, they took it out of their treasures. They had come prepared. They had made that decision to giving way back in the east, wherever they're from. And that is what God uses to create the opportunity that's beyond what they could ever imagine to have that experience. Yes, so um, this idea of blessings you know, from God is that, I mean, I agree, we, we, we always got to be careful about reading into circumstances and saying this is God or this isn't God, right? Except as the word tells us something about it. Uh, but what I found uh, that giving for me over the years, when we, Glenn and I started way back, um, it changed me, right? Choosing to trust God, choosing to say, what is God doing in the world and what's my part in it? And how do I participate? And doing those things, it grew me, it changed me. And who knows what the ripple effect of that is in, exactly. in my life, in our lives. And so uh, God will bless you. But just do not think like I know one man did many, many years ago here, came and he concluded, he, the way he heard it was that, wow, if I give 10% to the Lord, he's going to give me back more than that in money. And he eventually walked away because he was disenchanted, you know, he misunderstood. So we want to be clear we're doing what God says. Do you have any personal stories of giving that would, you know, encourage or challenge, or, and, and not real long ones? But. Yep, I got to tell you a, a quick one. Uh, we, um, we started our church in our living room now uh, almost 20 years ago, and those were very tight financial times. But when you're a pastor, you better give. No one else is going to if you don't give. <laughs> Um, and our boys were young and growing, and our oldest boy really needed a new bike. He had out, outgrown his other, but a hundred bucks right then just wasn't there. It, those were very tight times for us. And I remember trying to figure, I didn't want my son to dislike God or the church. 
I had to find some way to say we just can't do that because the need was obvious. And um, I sat down as best I could, and it probably wasn't all that great, and told him, you know, we're, we're going to hold off, we'll start saving, but, you know, we're making some choices about our money so that we can tell more people about Jesus. And he took it really well for, uh, I think he was eight or nine. And I know this sounds goofy, but it really happened. Saturday morning, I'm driving from my house on an errand, and I pass a yard sale, and there's this silver boy's bike out in the middle, and I literally pulled this horrifically illegal U-turn to get, <laughs> and I, I walked over there, and I asked the guy about that bike, and um, he said, yeah, we gave it to our kid for Christmas, but it wasn't the one he wanted, so I haven't even finished assembling it yet. And I looked at it, and I still remember, it was a mongoose. That was the bike my kid had asked for. So I said, how much? He goes, you know, give me 20 bucks. And I didn't even strike a deal. I said, sold. Went right back home. And I'll admit, I was bawling like a kid. I, so I was able to tell my son, you got your bike. But dad didn't give it to you. God gave it to you. And I hope memories like that. I mean, that doesn't happen every day, but we will see God's fingerprints on this whole enterprise if we will pay attention. Yes, yeah, definitely. All right, uh, so could you just maybe a practical idea of giving? You know, people say, I want to give, I want to be generous. Uh, and maybe they're you know, going to tithe or use a percentage giving. But the idea is, where do they give that? Do they give that to the church? What about giving to other organizations? Is there some sort of... Kind of just practical thought about that. Um, the biblical pattern starting all the way back to Abraham, which is the first, um, what we would call financial contribution, is always your place of financial responsibility. In the Old Testament, it was to the temple. In the New Testament, the early Christians gathered on the first day of the week, and they laid aside there. And I'm a very strong proponent that um, while it doesn't have to be the only place you spend your money, but your church is your spiritual home. And God gives leadership in the church and, and a collective energy and responsibility. That's where generosity should start biblically. And then if you have leftovers where you can help other good causes, I'm certainly not, gonna, not going to discourage that. But most people around the world would look at their church, even biblical ones like this one, and get a sense, wow, there's so much that really needs to be done. But, you know, Leaders can only do what there's a budget to do. So um, that's the biblical pattern as I see it. Okay, yeah, so start learning your generosity to the church and then certainly free to give beyond that, yeah. So last question here. We, I say this is a theor more theoretical kind of question. This is the kind of question you'd get in a classroom at a college, okay? Is this from you guys? No, it's not. <laughs> if a, if a group of Christians in a remote location meet together in the absence of an established corporate assembly, so it's just some Christians, you know, someplace getting together, they don't have a person designated as a full-time pastor, how does this body of believers give of the fruits of their increase? What would biblical model of giving look like in this scenario? That's a really good question. Um, first of all, you know, a building's not necessary for a church. There are uh, churches all over the world today who don't have buildings. And, of course, for hundreds of years, Christians didn't necessarily have 
buildings. But a church, as it's described in the New Testament, is not just an informal, casual gathering. It's a commitment. It's, it's a commitment to one another, so we act as a community. So I would certainly think, no matter what the context, unless you're simply somewhere for a couple of days on vacation or whatever, there needs to be a sense of community and joint responsibility, mutual accountability. You know, in that, you know, God's going to raise up gifted people among that, so he describes it uh, in time, in the, in the proper way. But um, I guess, and this may be too ambiguous of an answer, I'll tell you this, giving and generosity need to be started as quickly as possible because we develop habits. And it's very hard, just like in any other relationship, if you start off badly, corrections are difficult. So I would recommend to those folks, um, find out how you can shine the light of Jesus, pool whatever resources you can, and light the flame. That's what I would say. All right, thank you. Well, really, really appreciate it, Dave. And by the way, I, I should have told you, I count Dave as a friend over the Absolutely. years. We've spent time together, and I, I feel like I could call Dave if I needed somebody to talk to. So well, thank you. would you pray for us as a church? I would love that to. we would be honored to do that. That we would become all God wants us to be here? I would be honored to do that. Father, I want to thank you for the folks here at LifeSource. And I thank you for the blessing that they've been to me, uh, to Boston Baptist College, and more widely, they've been a blessing to each other, to folks all over Worcester County and all over the world. And I thank you that they started that journey years ago and faithfully. Through all the ups and downs of life, they have moved forward. And what I'd ask you to do, Father, for these folks, for these brothers and sisters, would you renew their unity together? Would you reestablish and fan the flame of their purpose, of what they're trying to do? And then up and down these rows, will you help each of us individually to recommit in every way that you lead us to be a part of what's happening now and what you've got for us to do in the days and months and years ahead. And we ask this in the name of the one whose name is above every name, the only name worth praying in, the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.